My text tonight is Psalm 27, and I'll do my prayer illumination after I read this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in the shelter, in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Lord, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have arisen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would indeed illumine our hearts. Give us an understanding like the psalmist had, that we, that we may truly in your peace wait upon you. We ask, Lord, that your Spirit would guide us in these thoughts and strengthen us for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we ask in his name. Amen. My wife and I were traveling. Uh, we've gotten in the pattern now when we do travel at a distance. We'll listen to things, and I get these uh, DV or CDs from Ligonier each month. I would encourage any of all of you, if you could, to become a partner. It's a good ministry. But they send out a devotional each month that's not available to the general public. And the one, one of the ones that we listened to was a devotional by Michael Reeves and was on this psalm. And as we listened to that, well, when I hear a good sermon or something like that, I want to get up and preach it. And I feel that this is very appropriate for us, this, this whole theme. So I've picked up some of his thoughts and just wanted to then bring that to you tonight because... In the light of where our society is, our culture is, more than ever before, 
We need this mindset of waiting on the Lord, believing him, trusting him. Do you know what the most frequent command or admonition is in the scripture? It's do not be afraid. Over 45 times it's found in the Old and New Testaments. And the context for most of those occasions is it's God speaking to them a, or a representative of God, calling them not to fear, but to believe God. Now, how do we take this admonition of do not be afraid beyond a point of being a cliche, a saying like PTL? Some of you are old enough to remember that, you know, everybody said PTL at one point, you know, praise the Lord. How do we bring this to be something like the center rail of our lives that empowers us, that gives us strength, that keeps us secure? as we face the storms of life, how do we not be afraid when we see everything crumbling against us? I would maintain that it is to know the character and the attributes of God, to see them in your lives as an operational directive, if you will. For instance, we know that God does not change and we know that God is good we know that he is holy. So the things that are happening in your life or my life, these things need to be defined by the fact that God hasn't changed and there is no shadow of shifting in him. He will not do something in our lives that is evil or that is even bad for us, even if it is harsh. You see, then that gives us a confidence you all are familiar with the passage in Philippians where Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, th that last part there is very important because that is the context in which we have a confidence in God because it is in Christ Jesus that he has made us his own precious possession, his people, that he has poured out his love upon us. In fact, the only way that you and I can experience the love of God is in Christ. If we move out of Christ, if we take actions that are a part from what God wants, then we actually do put ourselves in the place of being corrected, disciplined by God. But it is in Christ that all the fullness of God's love is poured out upon us because he loves his son. You will remember that the Lord Jesus Christ is precious to the Father and we are united in him. As we understand then the character and the attributes of the one who gives us this admonition to be not afraid, we understand, then we see our lives in terms of God's faithfulness. So what does courage look like in us when you're told to not be afraid? Understand that courage comes in the context of something to fear. There's something you should actually be afraid of. 
normally speaking. And in the terms of what we were looking at, courage shows the integrity of the gospel in our lives. Our actions, our responses to things, is seen then in the context of us believing the gospel, of living it. How does the gospel give us courage then? Well, for one thing, you see the reality of God's love. We saw that this morning in John 3.16. And I'd like to remind you that the love of God that's described there is not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's an action. It's what he actually did to redeem you and I, to bring us to a place of where we can have unhindered fellowship with him. You see it in John, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians 15, in Christ being raised from the dead, the resurrection. Again, that's an evidence of the love of God, of the completeness of it. We see it in the, in the death of Christ on the cross and that he finishes what the Father had given him to do. These things then give us confidence. So what should courage look like in us as Christians? Well, it would be a Christ-likeness in our interactions with one another and our responses to what is going on around us and things happening to us, even if, as David describes, everybody seems to be against him and want to destroy him. If you can just see that, there is a, then a peace. If you know that God's got your back, then what is there to be afraid of? If you believe that. C.S. Lewis wrote, Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at its testing point. I think that's a really important point that he makes there. The testing point is where it becomes hard to do what we should do. Somebody fails you. Somebody betrays you. It becomes hard to love them. It becomes hard to have patience. We have a peace where anger would normally fill us when we're driving and, and people endanger us by what they do. Uh, in a sense, uh, Dr. Reeves said he described it as a resilience in Christ-likeness in all of our circumstances, like a lion and a lamb. Think about that one. So, what is the foundation then, as, as David speaks here? You look at that first verse, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The context is twofold here. First of all, the context is that God is his light. He's not in darkness. He sees what's going on. 
There's nothing blind about that's happening. There is no such thing as chance. So God is his light. Because of that, he can have a confidence. And then he acknowledges, in a sense, his helplessness and God's sufficiency. He is my salvation, my redemption. And you see, if you know that, that God is there and that he is your Savior, what is there for us to be afraid of? You think about our circumstances. Normally, how do we operate? What gives you confidence? You've got some kind of problem, a conundrum that you're trying to work through, something that could be making you a little bit anxious. Well, what do we say? Well, you know, if I just can think this out, if I can see how this works, if I can know what's going on, if, if I could know why God is letting this happen, then I, could, I can accept it. You realize what we do when we do that, don't you? We're saying, okay, God, get my approval, and then I'll give you permission to go on with what you're doing. That's not trusting in him at all. It's wanting to be in control. I've seen some folks, some, and I, I think of some dear ladies that I've known in the past, and they just worry and they worry. I, I've told them, you know, that's your last ditch effort to be in control of things. You worry about it. Thinking, maybe if I dwell on this long enough, if I hope enough, it'll work out okay. I think some people use fasting and prayer that way. They think if they, if they fast, if they sacrifice, and if they pray long enough, that maybe God will hear them. That's unbiblical. Fasting has the concept of a consecration. Yes, you set aside something and, and you think about it. Fasting is ideal for that. The only other th thing that would compete with that would be sleep. But if you're uncomfortable... What do we do sometimes? We eat. Eating makes us feel good. We talk about comfort foods. And the fasting is, put, is putting aside those things that are temporal, that would give us comfort in a sense, that would make us, you know, if you've got a full stomach, you feel like you can face the difficulties of the world. And God doesn't want us there. He wants us dependent upon him. We fast. If we fast, we do it so that our dependence is not that we'll be uncomfortable, that there is nothing to distract us from seeking our comfort and our peace in him. And our praying then expresses submission not bargaining with God, not blackmailing God. If I pray enough, then God, you've got to answer. If I ask for this by using the right formula, if I do it in Jesus' name, then you've got to answer my prayers. That's not biblical. But he calls us to submit to him, to be seeking his will, to seek his face. Indeed, good petition from the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you know, as we approach then praying and fasting, if you do it, in this context, 
then our lives actually become a conduit for the will of God in our lives, our relationships with our families. Because we're seeking his, his influence and control. The circumstances that David describes here in verses 2 and 3 are those of everybody around him, it seems like, coming against him. They're turning against him. But David has a confidence here. He says, yet I will be confident. He's confident because of what God has done. And this is one of the things that you will learn as you go on in your Christian life. As you walk with the Lord in the light of his word, you see his faithfulness and it encourages you. You have an example of that in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David wrote that from the experience of walking with God according to his word. He had a confidence then that God would provide for him. Even if he went through the valley of the shadow of death, he wasn't going to fear. Why? Because the Lord was taking care of him. Even in the presence of his enemies, it was as if the Lord set a table and said, sit down and eat. Don't worry about them. Don't let them upset your stomach. I will provide for you. This is the confidence we have as we learn to walk in the Lord. My first church had 40 members. Eight of them lived in nursing homes. So each week I visited three different nursing homes. I learned, hey, this is a good place to practice my sermons. Granted, on Wednesdays, my sermons were in the infant stages, but I could go through the outline, and I'll tell you what, trying to explain a text to octogenarians, to those 70, 80, 90-somethings, in terms that they might remember or would understand with their varying degrees of alertness, is a really good exercise. And it was, it was very good for me, but it was also good for them. But I saw in that context an interesting contrast of people. There were two or three that I got to know who walked with the Lord all of their lives. And even as they saw their physical abilities and sometimes their mental abilities diminish, they had a joy in the Lord that they shared with others. There was one dear lady who'd been a Sunday school teacher most of her life, and in that nursing home, she would go to the different rooms, cheering people up, reading Scripture to them, praying with them. And then there were those who, yes, they were members of the church, but they always had sort of an Eeyore kind of personality, or they, they, they had always complained, and it was worse. They had no confidence. They wanted to know what God was doing. Why does God let them be in this circumstance? What, where is their family? Why isn't there? And everything, it was hard to encourage those people. But you see, that was part of their own making. I'm not saying that they weren't children of God, but because of the scarcity, perhaps, of their communion with God in their lives, at that time of adversity, 
it was difficult for them. Um, I saw one church in Iceland, a beautiful church, and, and it really it, it struck me. It, it was a gingerbread style. It had four steeples on the corners with crosses and one in the center with a cross. And I asked a merchant about it, and she, she said, there's a pew for every family in the church. I said, well, what about the services? So my daughter and I were there for a weekend, and she said, well, the minister does something for the children on Sunday mornings, and then she'll do funerals, weddings and funerals. But you know, you need a church for times like that. And I want to tell you, if the Lord is a stranger to you in the good times, the easy times in your life, you will be a stranger to him in the hard times. You will hear what he says in Matthew 7, depart from me, I knew you not. We need to be walking with the Lord consistently, learning. Peter learned this. You know, Peter did struggle. He struggled when he denied Christ three times. The Lord is gracious. And you remember when then he saw the Lord after the resurrection, he was challenged to feed the sheep. If he loved Christ, he was called to feed the sheep. That's a good admonition there. Do you love Christ? You're called to be doing what he wants you to be doing where you are. But later in uh, Antioch, Peter again failed. Remember, he became fearful of those who came down from Jerusalem. And he segregated with those who were Jewish away from the Gentile believers. And Paul took him to task on that. Yet later, Peter learned, and he was able to write this in his letter in chapter uh, 3. He says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ or sanctify Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is what the Lord brought him to. This is what walking with the Lord, depending upon the Lord, learning from the Lord, learning the grace of God. This is what it brings us to. So how do we then deal with as Dr. Reeves terms that, how do we kill the raging beast of anxiety? Look at verse 4. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I don't know if you've ever really reflected on that. The desire to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Do you have that? A desire to see the beauty of Christ, to understand it, to 
be in his presence, even where we are now. This is how we attack this, the anxiety. This is how we quell it and, and put it away. In Matthew 6, Jesus tells them not to be seeking the things of the world. Your father knows what you need. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And what Jesus is doing here is that he's shifting their orientation, their focus from, shall we say, circumstances and, and maybe perceived needs to look beyond that to the Lord. What, do, what do the, does the psalmist say? Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is what we are called to do. This is what then will address the anxiety that comes to us. Because as we get caught up with fears around us, we're sort of like Peter when he stepped out of the boat. And as long as he looked at the Lord, he was walking on the water. But as he looked at the raging seas, he took his eyes off Christ and he began to sink. And fear will work in us to blind us to whom God is and God's character. It will disorient us and stop us from seeing anything else. But what Jesus does in this passage in Matthew is that he puts God as being the sun in our this perspective of our sky. God is the center that we look at, and he enlightens, and he puts the context on everything that you and I will face. You think in Matthew 10, where he, he tells them not to fear man who can kill your body, but him who can kill body and soul. Now, that sounds pretty harsh, but then what does he say? He says, look at the sparrow and how God provides for the sparrow. I'm not reading it to you, so I'm not quoting it exactly, but you understand the point that Christ is making. If God provides for these creatures on the earth, how much more so will he provide for you and I, who are his own possession? In Hebrews 12, the writer to the Hebrews admonishes them to lay aside every sin and encumbrance and to fix your eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ, looking to him who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. This is what we are to focus upon. As we do that, as we look upon Christ, that calms the anxieties that we might encounter. And what really puts the finishing touch on this, as, as David describes it, is the beauty of the Lord, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to see him, to desire to see the face of the Lord. Think about the benediction this morning. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. In other words, that you would have the full benefit of God's love and grace. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. This is the context that David calls us to here. Look at verse 30 or Psalm 34 for a moment. 
verses seven, four through seven. And, it, and it's really interesting. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. This is what we're called to. We're not called to worry. We're called to look to the Lord. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. You can tell when somebody spent a lot of time with the Lord sometimes, if you know them, there's something about them. It's not just their mood. There's, there's a delight. There's a joy if they've truly spent that time with the Lord. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Yeah, you could apply that to the communion table because it brings us back to the reality of the love of God and what he has done. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Now understand something. David still struggles. You read then in Psalm 27, as you go through each one of them, you see this cry, this, this, this plead. When I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, I do, do I seek. He's making these appeals. Even if his father and mother have forsaken him, the Lord will take him in. He struggles at times, but he comes back to the Lord. His, his anchor point, his center rail is the Lord. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. And then he comes to this answer. Verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The basis of that strength, the basis of that courage is you're waiting upon the Lord. You're believing God. Not just believing in Him, but you believe Him. And that gives you that peace that is beyond comprehension. Think about this. Your confidence or courage in the Lord and peace give evidence, if you will, or proof that you're trusting in Christ and Christ alone. Dr. Reeves has this really great comment. Beloved, if you want to be anxious, simply pretend you are in control. Forget God. And cowardice and fear will come from having to rely on yourself or on those who could fail you. But if you want courage, wait for the Lord. Look to him, and his beauty will be your ball and will lift your head. For nothing can give us greater courage than a sincere love for the Lord. 
You know, and as I've thought about that, I've come to a point of, in my praying, in my motivations, I ask God, help me to do things because I love Christ. Let my motivation for what I do, whether it's playing, yes, and old guys like me can play, it's working, it's listening to someone, especially if I'm speaking, and I don't mean preaching. Let all of these things be motivated, empowered by loving Christ first. My wife will benefit from that. My children will benefit because I'm loving Christ and allowing him to be my confidence. And, you know, there will be those trials that can knock us down, that can really knock the wind out of you. But if they knock you down, let it be that you fall upon the Lord and you then grow in his strength. And if you have a courage, it's because of you being in him. You can be then like Paul, who says from his prison cell, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is our confidence. Let me finish with some well-known words from Isaiah. Chapter 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? You hear what he's saying there? Why are you saying that God doesn't know what's going on in your life? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Father, teach us this. Let our courage be because you have loved us and you hold us. You are in control even though our lives seem out of control. It's only from our perspective, not yours. And as we doubt, as we struggle with believing you, 
remind us of you sending your Son to set us free, to make us yours, so that you could bless us with every blessing in the heavenly places. Teach us, Lord, to wait upon you. And through that, that we show the glory of the Lord in all of our circumstances. We thank you and we do pray in Christ's name. Amen.